No matter what you think your purpose is in coming this morning, whether uh, you come here all the time or whether this is your first time, God has purposes for you being here this morning. And we believe that God brings every person who comes on a Sunday morning through the, those doors into this place. And He has things for you here. And we're so just happy to be part of that process of welcoming you in Christ's name. We're going to turn our attention to God's Word, and I invite you, has, has been our habit, we're going to read this out loud together. And we're doing that uh, just as a reminder that we're a people of the book, and we're people who uh, we want everybody to have this Word in them. So uh, for a long time, we've had people read this out loud, but we're in a season of just reading this aloud together because we want you to put this Word, we think this is wisdom and truth. That you would put this inside of you. So we're going to read together from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 on the wall behind me, also in your bulletin. So you ready? Three, two, one, go. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to draw water in the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I gave my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. There is nothing like your word. We pray now as we open ourselves up to you, Father, that you would come and speak to each one of us. Lord, we know we come into this place from a variety of backgrounds and experiences, but each of us come the same way, in need of a word from you, in need of a touch, of, of just a sense that you are with us, that you're for us, that you are here by the power of your Spirit and speaking to us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're just joining us, we are working our way this fall through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's like reading a memoir, but it's sort of like reading the memoir of nobody you've ever met before. And honestly, I have a hard time even being able to place in our culture a person like this person. Now, the church throughout the ages has treated this as the words of King Solomon, and he's the richest and most powerful king in all of Israelite history. Uh, but I've Trying to think of like who I can compare this to in modern day, this is somebody with like the power of Donald Trump and the riches of a Kardashian and the sort of uh, business savvy of Steve Jobs 
and the intellect of Stephen Hawking. This is just sort of this larger-than-life person. Um, and the author, however, doesn't use the name Solomon and doesn't, as you go through this memoir, you can tell he actually uses a different name. He uses the word Koheleth. And we have this up here so you can, some of you asked me last time I was preached how to spell it. Go one more slide. I think it's up there. Okay, maybe not. Uh, but Koheleth, um, which just means the teacher, which means that this memoir is not just a story of his life. It is, it's actually, he's taking us on a journey. He's teaching something. He's taking us down all these different pathways and saying, is meaning here? Do you find purpose there? Do you find meaning right here? Where is it in life? And this, this morning as we look at this, we're looking from chapter 2 about pleasure. Is there meaning? Is there purpose and pleasure? See, in verse 3, he says here, what use is it? That's the question he's asking. Is there something from this? Now, that may sound kind of odd to you or kind of ancient to you. Like we don't think of finding meaning in our pleasures. We find maybe escape in our pleasures. We find joy in our pleasures, but finding meaning. But can I just remind you uh, that you live under the philosophy, one of the great philosophers of our age is a man named Pharrell Williams. And uh, I, I, let me just see if you know his philosophy. So let's, let's fill in the blank. He sings, because I'm happy, Clap along if you feel like a room without a... Oh, yeah, you know it, right? You know, uh, because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth, right? right? Because I'm happy, clap along if you know what happiness is to you, right? Good. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like that's what you want to... So you guys know this. You're under the influence of Pharrell Williams in this room. You didn't even know it. Now, if that's too lowbrow for you, I got a highbrow one. Um, uh, centuries before this, the, the famous French mathematician Blaise Pascal said almost the same thing. He said this, everyone you know lives for happiness all the time. Lives for happiness all the time. This is what every person without exception seek in everything they do. He writes, whatever means they employ, it's all to this end. It's the cause of some to go to war, of others to avoid it. It's the same desire in both. Happiness. This, the will never takes any least step but to this object of happiness. This is the motive of every action of every person, even those who hang themselves. Ugh, you know, like, right, this is startling to read. But he's saying, this is behind everything. This is what we seek in life. Everyone is trying to find meaning in life. Everyone is trying to find happiness in life. Everyone wants to be happy, and this is what we're looking for all the time. Um, now, the difference, though, between Kohelet and you is that he's got all the means and all the time and all the opportunities. So we, when we think about our pleasures, about the things that give us life or that we look to for fun or escape, we say we dabble with those things. We flirt with them. You know, do you, do you ever have a me day? That's like a, a reward yourself day. But not every day is me, can be me day, right? Uh, we reward, we flirt with these things. We might indulge ourselves. You might give yourself a treat. But we can't give ourselves to these things like he does. We read here, he, he's, listen to this. He, he dives in head first. He gives himself 100% to hedonistic excess. He, he Sensory overload, denying no pleasure, orgies of every type. That's just what he's doing. He's saying, I gave myself all the way to this to see what was at the end. 
And this is why he's a teacher. He has something to tell us. And if you take notes, here are my points for this morning. The pleasures, the pleasures we seek, the pleasures that don't deliver, and the real pleasure we want. So let's jump in with this. The pleasures we seek. Now, look at all the places that the teacher goes to to find happiness. They're listed for you, just one by one, going through this passage. And what's remarkable, he, he goes down seven different pathways, and what's remarkable is how modern they are, how similar they are to where we live. As he said earlier in this book, there is nothing new under the sun. So he lists he things like this, jokes and humor, alcohol, money and possessions, music, sex, affirmation, work. These, these seven pathways are the same ones we pursue today. So let, I, want, I want to just walk through them briefly and look at each of these pathways. Um, jokes, humor. Now, now, what is it we say, laughter is the best medicine, right? You know this. Um, and to be honest, Friday night, I was at a, a stand-up comedian, and it was awesome with some friends, laughed my head off, right? Like, great time that evening. But question for you, what do all these people have in common? Uh, Ellen DeGeneres, Owen Wilson, Bernie Mac, Larry David, Conan O'Brien, Cedric the Entertainer, Woody Allen, Dave Chappelle. They all struggle with depression, or they all did struggle with depression. You know, what we see over and over again is some of the people who are our funniest people are often most in touch with the deep sadnesses of, of this world. This is why in August of 2014, the world was shocked when Woody Allen, I mean, sorry, when Woody Allen, when um, Robin Williams, thank you. Yeah, when Robin Williams took his life. I mean, it was like a punch in the gut. Robin Williams, one of the most talented, brilliant humorists of our day. Right, in touch with the darkness of this world. And, and he comes to the same place, he came to the same place Kohelet did. You know, I said of laughter, it's mad, empty. And of pleasure, what use is it? See, the, the word we've been using, <coughs> the, the word he uses over and over again for vapor or emptiness is the word hevel. And I want you to know this word. I told you a couple of weeks ago, this is the vaping book of the Old Testament uh, because like that person walking down the sidewalk with the jewel or the vape, it, it, it's just gone. You see the puff, and then it's gone. There's no grabbing at it. And again, he says this with humor. With There's nothing to this. Second, um, alcohol. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. I love this. I searched with my I had to study alcohol, like really hard. Um, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, we all know that alcohol can be a gift. In fact, Scripture tells us that alcohol is a gift given to cheer the hearts of men. It's a gift from God. And yet, so many of us know lives that have been devastated by alcohol addictions or dependencies, ways that alcohol has been used that actually brings shipwreck into in the lives of people. Um, it's really funny. You may think of alcohol dependency or addiction as a modern issue. I was, I was preparing for this lesson uh, today, for this sermon today. I was surprised to read back in 1633. Okay, almost 400 years ago, this English pastor writes to his congregation, drink not the third glass. And I'm like, that's worth keeping right there. Drink not the third glass. 
two glasses, that's okay. Drink not the third one, right? And he, he goes on. He says, uh, because you can't tame it once it is within thee. Uh, shall I, to please another's wine-sprung mind, lose all my own? I think that's great advice, right? Um, alcohol, it's, it's a gift, but it also can become a master. It can also rule us. I mean, its delight is momentary, and it can bring great, great hurt, right? Hevel, emptiness. Three, money and possessions. Look at verses four through eight. Notice when um, the teacher here mentions his possessions, it's all in the plural, it's like Noah's Ark, two by two, right? You know, you may want a drink, you may want a vacation house. He's got vacation houses, right? You may, you may want a swimming pool in your yard. He's got pools, right? And we read here, gardens, uh, parks, vineyards, slaves, herds, flocks, golds, silvers, treasure. And like it, it just keeps going. He's got all of it. But listen to his verdict about his stuff, about his money. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Yeah, he's singing the song from Kansas, the band Kansas from the, six, the 70s, like, all dust in the wind, right? It's just, it's just it's through your fingers. It, it's, it, you can't keep it. So today's um, desirable new car, let's just say, oh, maybe a Jeep Gladiator that someone would want to give their pastor, right? Like, um... <laughs> That's going to be in the dump in 15 years. Those shoes that you think are so awesome that you looked at last night, right? Like 10 years from now, you're going to be like, why did I ever wear those? Like that's what we always do looking back on our fashion from 10 years ago. What was I thinking? Yeah, what were we all thinking, right? That's, that's what fashion does. Um, you know, today's new home has a leak in the roof tomorrow, right? These things, dust in the wind. Four, music. Verse 8, listen, I got singers, both men and women. This is a man who loved music, and he had the power and the money to have a live concert in his home every night. So imagine, like, this week you have Taylor Swift on Monday, you have Daft Punk on Tuesday, you have Chance the Rapper on Wednesday, you got Adele on Thursday, right? You, you could just have whoever you want. And yet, this also falls under the axe. It's also under Hevel. And I just want you to think about this. Like, Music is such a gift. It moves us. It's one of the great enjoyments of this life. And yet, think about the best concert you've ever been to. Maybe you filmed it even on your phone, but you can't go back. Right? That experience, that night, that connection with that artist, it's gone. Or, or, or your favorite songs. You may have, like, I have my collection of vinyls, or I have my, my Spotify, everything. You know, like, you've got all the stuff, and yet, like, that moment of deep connection where that song spoke to you that way, that's a moment, and it's gone. It's gone. It's hevel. It's like vapor. Fifth, sex, verse 8. Kohel mentions his concubines, and, and what we see here is limitless sexual options, and there probably wasn't a person until the modern internet who had, like him, so much access to so much bodies. And, and he, he says, you know, I gave myself to all this. And yet it also falls under the axe of Hevel. This is emptiness. It doesn't give life. All, all of, of sexual options don't give me life. And we, we live in a culture that's, all, that's like, hey, what we do with our bodies, it doesn't really matter. Right? It's, it's, just, it's just bodies, right? And yet we know lives devastated 
by sexual choices. Um, in an interview recently, Drake, the hip-hop artist, so there was a point when I felt like I needed to keep the company of a different woman every night of the week. I was trying to fill a void. But in the moments after sex, I knew it wasn't working. Those quiet moments are the realest moments a man will ever have in his life. The next day, I convinced myself to do it again. But during that time, I knew it wasn't working. I mean, Drake is saying, in his own way, vapor. And, and, and lest we think, and, and the church does this sometimes, makes sexuality um, and, and even uh, promiscuous sexuality into a, just a man's issue. I, I read this week an interview with Ke- uh, Carrie Cohen, and she wrote a memoir called Loose Girl, Loose Girl, A Memoir of Promiscuity. And she, she'd gone, done this exercise going back in her mind, figuring she realized she'd had close to 40 sexual partners over her 20s. And she recounts that with sadness. She writes that she was trying to find proof of being loved. And she says, for, for a man, this might be a pleasant trip down memory lane, counting up his conquests. But for a girl, it's a whole other story. I had let these men inside of me, wanting that to make me matter to them wanting it to make me matter. Hevel. Affirmation or accomplishment. Verse 9, Kohel turns then to like, look at all the things I've done in my life. Look at all the things. He says, I became great and surpassed others who were before me in Jerusalem. He's, he's the most talented person to date, right? Most accomplished. And yet what he says, what we hear from other people throughout history so just this past week, there's an, a new 30 for 30 ESPN video that's been dropped, um, this one on Dennis Rodman. So the 30 for 30 are a series of sort of these documentaries around great sports stories or great sports personalities throughout years. And this one on Dennis Rodman uh, dropped. Now, so for you millennials, here's who Dennis Rodman was. Okay, Dennis Rodman was a big deal when I was in college. He, he was on the winning Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan, has five championships to his name. He was one of the most uh, amazing defensive players ever to play basketball. Crazy, dyed hair, lots of piercings, really out there personality, right? Right before this video, this uh, 30 for 30 drops, he does an interview. And during the interview, he breaks down crying. And he, he says... You know, this whole, all the, the, the winnings, all the accomplishments, he says, I just wanted people to love me. I mean, it's just an incredibly, you can almost hear him saying, like, Koheleth here, I became great and surpassed all who were before me, and yet, Hevel. It's emptiness. Finally, work. And we'll do a lot more on this next week. But uh, verse 11, Then I considered all my hands had done, the toil I expended doing it, and all of that was vanity and a striving after wind. I mean, it's an incredible statement. Uh, there's a guy, Jack Higgins, a uh, best-selling novelist, wrote this. He says, I wish I had known then what I know now, that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Nothing there. <laughs> One of my kids showed me this. There's a, a video going around the Internet and somebody gives, have you all seen this? Somebody gives ra- raccoons cotton candy? Okay, I, I, and, and I didn't know this, but raccoons wash their food before they eat it. So they, they give these raccoons cotton candy, and they put it in the water, and then it's like, and somebody plays in the background, hello, darkness, my old friend. You know, like it's just a, um, see, that, that is such a picture 
of Hevel, of like this, ah, oh. you know, these are the pleasures we pursue. And, and um, now you're probably saying, okay, bald pastor, let me, let me, at this point in the sermon, you're like, look, I know that those things, those things are good things. I'm not trying to get meaning or purpose out of them. I'm not like Koheleth. I mean, like, come on, who, who's trying to find meaning or purpose in these things? Well, let me, let me kind of fra- reframe it this way. Have you ever watched a baby with a pacifier? So we gave our kids pacifiers, and look, no judge. Don't judge us, okay? Like, I know what orthodontics say about that, but look, everybody, if you go to a do- dentist, everybody needs orthodontics anyway, so yeah, get over it. So anyway, five out of our six kids would take the pacifier, and we did this for our own sanity and not you know, so we could actually sleep and be normal people. And um, my kids were so attached to this, several of them even named their pacifiers, like had a specific word they invented to call this thing. So, you know, they, they, these babies, you know, these little toddlers would take this thing and you try to take it away from them. You know, and it's like, you know, they're like sucking, following the pacifier. You were trying to pull this away. I mean, a toddler will flat out fight you in, in a mean underhanded, not nice way, right, over a pacifier. It is hardcore. Um, But here's the thing about pacifiers. We know a pacifier only pacifies, right? There's no nutritional value. There's nothing of substance being delivered through the pacifier to the baby except for sanity for the parents. That's the only thing coming through that thing. But nothing of any value. And see, this is what Koheleth is doing. He's walking through all these things that we're like, it's just a pacifier. Just a pacifier. And he's like pulling it out of your mouth. And you're like, no, I don't want that. Like, he's saying that's not a satisfier. It's a pacifier. And I just want to challenge you. These good things, right? These good gifts that God's given us, like music and alcohol. I mean, these accomplishments, these are good things. Try to go a month without music, you music lovers. And you'll be ready to fight. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give up my wine for a month. No, I'm not. Like, 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 I mean, these things are good things, but we, and you may say, like, I'm not getting pleasure out of them. Well, why is it so hard to take it away from you? Why is it hard? Because we're confused about what's a pacifier and what's a satisfier. Now, time out. How's the sermon going so far right now? Like, you know, y'all are mostly Bible Belt people, and isn't this what you expect in church? I mean, let's be honest. Like, the pleasures of this world don't satisfy. Everybody's heard this sermon before. Everybody's heard this one. But here's where I think the teacher takes a surprising turn. And he doesn't do what the Bible Belt teacher would do. Because Kohelet never says those pleasures are bad. Your desires are wrong. In fact, we we read in this book over and over again, he says things like this, eat and drink and enjoy your life. Enjoy it. Enjoy these things. And see, Koalath is showing us, all he's saying is like, these are pacifiers, these things. They're not satisfiers. And what what he's doing here in not going the extra step is what the rest of the Bible does. God has designed your body as a pleasure machine. You have five senses that take in all kinds of different types of pleasure. And that is a gift from the Lord. He made you that way. We know about the brain. The brain 
has dopamine receptors, which are like little pops of good feelings, right? Like dopamine is just like a little drip of good feeling, right? And we found out recently you get one of those when everybody likes your social media post, a little dopamine drip, right? The, the, God designed you to be a person who enjoys pleasures of this life. Now, that's not all you're for, but God doesn't call those things bad. And in fact, in fact that's anybody who says different hadn't done their homework and definitely hadn't read this book. Because like the writer of Ecclesiastes, this book is pro-pleasure. It is pro-pleasure. There's an there's a entire book of erotic love poetry in the Bible. That's not an accident. God's not like, oh no, how did that get in there? <laughs> right? Like, Jesus shows us, tells us over and over again, the end of time will be like this. It will be a, like a great banquet where your joy cups will overflow. Right? The new heavens and the new earth, it's not going to be like sea rations and cliff bars with Jesus. <laughs> he has designed us for people who are made for pleasure and to enjoy this life. And yet, see, this is, this is what this is what we're seeing. This is what Koala's doing. He's just like, taking the pacifier, saying, look, do you see? What you, what you are grasping at in this life, these things that are not the ultimate, they're pacifiers, they're not satisfiers. And he's being kind in showing us those things. He's actually really, really kind in showing these things. And as I've said throughout, the, we're, we're going to do it every week in this series, Kohelo keeps asking the questions that beg for an answer that comes several thousand years later. The person, the teacher, right? The teacher, the, 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 the teacher keeps asking these questions and Rabbi Jesus shows up on the scene and gives the answers. So he's, he's like, pleasure. Do you see? Like we, these are the pleasures we like. These are the pleasures that don't satisfy. And Kohel's son, it's got a point. It's got a point to something else. There's got to be a satisfier. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And we're going to look at this briefly from John 2, where Jesus shows up on the scene and says, yes, this is supposed to go somewhere. Um, we'll put this up on the wall behind me, but um, I'm not going to go through verse by verse. But John 2 shows us Jesus showing up at a wedding. And this is before he's come out as a public figure. He's just attending the wedding. He's just in the crowd. Now, in Palestine, a wedding would last about a week long. And everybody, this is what you did. This was an excuse to knock off of work and spend the whole week with your neighbors celebrating. And so a wedding was a big deal. And in the ancient Near East, the hospitality, providing for that wedding, making sure everything was set, was an even bigger deal. So what happens here is that Jesus shows up at a wedding, and we don't even know the name of the bride or groom, but we do know this. It's about to crash. This is a wedding that's about to crash. There's a catering disaster just about to happen at this wedding. They're about to run out of wine. Now, this would have meant if this family had, had all their neighbors and all their friends in their house celebrating and they run out of wine, this would have meant social humiliation for generations. People would have talked about this family and this event for years to come. And so Jesus is there with this family, and his mom, for some reason, we don't know why, takes on, like, we got to do something, and turns to Jesus. Again, we don't know why. We don't know what we, she expected him to do, but she's like, help, do something. And this is where Jesus 
shows up. He's, a, he's showing up at a wedding that's about to crash, and he steps into this, and this is the first miracle he does, turning water into wine at this wedding. And, and yet John doesn't call it a miracle when he writes about this. He calls it a sign. Now, you know what to do with a sign. You read a sign. A sign tells you something. And John's saying, this, this event is not just some random miracle. This is something that tells us something very explicit about Jesus Christ. So let's read the sign together. This is Jesus' first ever public miracle, and it's not even that public. I mean, if you think about it, the only people who knew that water had been changed into wine were the people who were working the catering job. Right? The, the, people, the, the best man finds out and tells the groom. But nobody really, it's not even that great a public miracle. Um, but Jesus chooses this moment, this moment, as his place to come out as a public persona. Now, if you know anything about rock stars or politicians, there's a lot of marketing that goes into what's going to be the moment where this new personality is unveiled for the world to see. So there's a lot of thought that goes into this, and Jesus picks this moment. This moment is going to be my place of coming out in public. Now, why would Jesus do that? Think about weddings. Weddings are those moments that where we take the pictures. This is where we spend the money. This is where those of you who can't dance, this is the one time a year when you dance, like me, okay? My hips don't move, right? So like, I, I'll get out there maybe for a couple songs, maybe, right? And, and because like, this is where you throw down. This is a party. And Jesus says, there's something about a party that's what I'm like. And my kingdom is like. This is what I'm all about. And Jesus shows up at this place. And he turns water into wine. Now, let's just say something about, the, about the, the quality and the quantity of this. We know that it was a great quantity of wine because there are these giant jars, and we'll talk about these more in a moment. There's six of them that hold about 30 gallons. If you could picture, we have these trash cans around the room, 55-gallon trash cans, same height, just a little less far around, okay? So let's, y'all are a bunch of math nerds, a bunch of engineers in here and architects and all that kind. So like, Six jars of 30 gallons each. How many gallons of wine that is that? 180 gallons of wine. That is an over-the-top amount of wine for a party, especially if they've already been drinking for a while. This is a lot of wine that Jesus makes. And we find out this is not just like two-buck chuck. This is not the Trader Joe's cheap stuff, right? The, 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 the master of ceremonies comes and says, wait, You've saved the good wine until the end of the party. You're supposed to serve that stuff first. This is Vintner's Reserve. This is a really, really good stuff, right? And he says, this is what we're doing. Now, I know that this passage makes a lot of really conservative people really uncomfortable. And they're like, surely Jesus turned it into grape juice. No, no, he didn't. Because it's clear in the passage, these people already have a buzz going. You're going to serve this when people already had a little bit to drink? The good stuff? No, you serve the good stuff first for the first glass. You serve the cheap stuff later when people don't notice. Right? That's what's being implied. That's been being described in this passage. See, why, why does he do this? Because in the Bible, over and over, wine is a symbol of joy. Read the Psalms. They're filled with descriptions of how you give greater joy than when new wine abounds. It's saying, like, 
Jesus uh, saying, saying of God and, and his salvation, you are defined by this. This is how I can describe this. It is that, it's that pleasant. It's that pleasing. It's that, it's that wonderful. Like this is what Jesus identifies this. I mean, this is why it's, I love in our church that we have wine and good wine at communion. Like, like because we're, we're saying like this, this is a symbol of joy. Can you read the sign? This is the question that comes to us from John 2. Can you read the sign? Jesus is not a pacifier. He is the satisfier. But it's even more than that. Because um, Jesus took the jars and used that water to turn it to wine. Now, these six stone jars that are described, these six jars were used by the Jews for ritual purification. They would splash in this, and they knew, like, this washing was, it, it didn't do anything, but symbolic of a deeper washing that we need. And Jesus comes and takes that and says, these jars are going to be useless to you anymore. Let me take what was used for a sign of cleansing and replace that with joy. Now, what is he doing? What Jesus is doing is showing us that Jesus meets us in all the places of uncleanness and defilement. Now, we all know what embarrassment is. You know, it's the proverbial dropping your tray in the high school cafeteria, everyone's looking. And that's sort of like your average level embarrassment. But shame is something much more profound. Uh, guilt has to do with feeling bad about what I've done. Shame has to do with who I am. Who I am is just wrong. Like, it doesn't matter where I go. I'm being seen. There are witnesses, and it's public, and there's something wrong with me. John Paul Sartre described it as a hemorrhaging of the soul. Like, like I'm bleeding out. You know, there, there's something so wrong with me, and there are witnesses to, to this, and I'm just bleeding out, and everybody knows and I'm filled with this sense of defilement and corruption and shame. And Jesus steps into that. You see what he's doing? He takes the stone jars. He takes this and turns this into wine. And what is he saying to us? Like, you came in here this morning, some of you, feeling a great weight of shame. This great burden of like, there is something profoundly wrong with me. There are ways that I feel unworthy and unclean. And Jesus is showing us, like, look, even in those places, even in the, the darkest places, the places that you don't dare name to another person, you would never tell your parents, you would never tell your roommates, you don't want anybody to know, light and healing and joy, those places. This is what our Savior's about. This, see, can you read the sign? The sign of the wine, the sign of the jars, healing wholeness, joy, even in the places of despair. And finally, this one. Um, in this passage, we read about a failure. You know, ultimately, the person who was responsible for this catering disaster was the groom. The groom should have provided enough wine. It should have made sure, should have gone back to the, to the cellar and checked to make sure all the bottles were there. Should have sent somebody to the, to the store with a 20. Go get us some more two-buck chuck. We need this right now. Right, like, should have gone after this. The, the groom messes up. He messes up. And then, um, and it's his shortcoming that's actually covered by Jesus. So we read here in John 2, when the master of the feast, the head waiter, 
tasted the water now become wine and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it up, they knew. The master of the feast called the groom and said to him, you see who's in charge of the wine? He says, wow, you've saved the best for last. Of course, he didn't. He dropped the ball. And of course, this is one of the great joys of this passage. It's because Jesus steps into this role, the failure of the groom. He steps in in place of this groom and saves the day. The chapter after this, there's a guy named John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who had been sent by God beforehand to welcome, to prepare the way. And this is what John the Baptist says of Jesus. He's like, you know what? I'm like the best man. Jesus is like the groom. And I can see he is coming. He, he's coming. And, you know, I'm just here to get, the, get everything ready so the groom can step in. I must decrease that he might increase. And here's what we see Jesus doing. He steps into the role of the groom and covers his failures. Now, this is such a great picture of hope for me, and I hope for you, in the places where we are failures, where we're failed husbands and grooms and mothers and daughters and sons and wives and children and employees and friends, all these places where we are in touch with our own failure, Jesus steps in. Can you read the sign of the bridegroom? The groom steps in and says, I take, I'll take the hit. I'll cover the tab. I'll pay for the mistake. I'll pay for what's wrong. Jesus loves us this way. See, one of the reasons why I think we don't know the names of the bride and groom in John 2 is because actually there are only two names in this story. And it's Jesus the groom and us, his bride. Brothers and sisters, this is the invitation for you this morning. You know, Kohel asks a question. Is there life in any of these pacifiers? Is there life in any of these pacifiers? And Jesus answers it, I have come to bring real joy, real and lasting joy. I've come to meet you in the places of your shame. I've come to bring the overflowing presence of my spirit that brings joy. I've come to cover even your failures. This is what Jesus does. And he invites us this morning, therefore, to spit out our pacifiers. Those things that we go to are like this. It's not, good. It's not everything, but man, this, this is doing something. And Jesus invites us, as painful as it is, let go. Lay it aside. Come to me. Come to me in all the places of your hurt and your longing, all the places where you've been running for joy besides him. He is the joy giver. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning that you meet us and know us as we are as weak people who confuse good things with ultimate things, confuse pacifiers with satisfiers. Father, we thank you that you see us and, Lord, you move toward us in our weakness. I pray this morning, Lord, for those who are long-term Christians in this room, who have tasted of joy in you and yet have long time, uh, their, their eyes have become dim and their hearts have become dull and they've lost the joy of their salvation. I pray, Father, would you give them courage this morning to name lesser things as only, only pacifiers and you as the only thing that satisfies. Lord, renew their joy. Lord, I pray for those, Lord, who are 
not Christians who are here this morning or who may not have given themselves fully to you, Lord, I pray that you would help them to lay down, lay aside those things which are not lasting, which don't satisfy. Lord, lay those at your feet and come rushing to you this morning. We thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.